Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. Okay. Hey there. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Show. I'm not doing the music today. I decided unilaterally. I just was standing here getting ready to do the show and I thought to myself, do I need this music? Is it necessary? Do I even like it? Have I ever liked it? Does anybody like it? Isn't a theme song just a waste of time? We know what show this is. You're not listening to this program by accident. I think in some ways I might be having a crisis of confidence about the music. The fact that I picked it, whether or not I like the song, what the song might say about me, the fact that I chose it. It's possible that I'll go back to it, or maybe I won't. I don't know. So in lieu of using the music, I did use uh, like some nature sounds instead, which I realize is also a little bit strange, but uh, could possibly be more enjoyable in a more efficient way to enter the realm of this program. If you have thoughts on this, you can email me. Uh, my address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. On the program today, I have Depeng Chen as my guest. Her debut story collection, Land of Big Numbers, is out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is generating buzz and earning uh, rave reviews. It also happens to be the official January pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online culture magazine and literary community. Perhaps you're aware of it. It has its own monthly book club. And uh, I interview book club authors on this program each month. For more on the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com and click on Book Club in the menu bar. So Deping Chen, uh, in addition to being an excellent fiction writer, is also an accomplished journalist. She is currently a Wall Street Journal correspondent in the city of Philadelphia. And previously, she was based overseas in Beijing and Hong Kong. Experiences that, you know, the experiences that she had while she was overseas working as a correspondent in China and Hong Kong, um, you know, obviously factor in, or I guess maybe not obviously to you, but obviously once you've read the book, they factor in greatly to Land of Big Numbers. And I got to say that Land of Big Numbers feels to me like one of those story collections. There, there's a small handful every year. I've said this before, but there's a small handful 
of books every year, and especially story collections or collections of poetry that get people unusually excited. And I feel like this is one of them. I feel like it's going to wind up on a lot of best lists at the end of the year. I think it's going to get nominated for some awards. It might win some awards. I'm saying that right now. I feel like over the years, I've gotten pretty good at knowing when this sort of thing is going to happen. So I feel like I should just go on the record right now and uh, say it. Land of Big Numbers by Deping Chen is going to be longlisted, at the very least, for the National Book Award in Fiction. You heard it here first. I'm calling my shot. And if I'm wrong, then you can mock me for being wrong. And if I'm right, which I will be, you will have no choice but to uh, acknowledge my uncanny grasp of the American literary uh, firmament. So anyway, it was great to meet Ping Chen, and uh, I'm really happy to share the conversation that we had with you right now. Once again, her critically acclaimed debut story collection is called Land of Big Numbers, the official January pick of the TNB Book Club, available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Here she is, you guys. This is Ping Chen. Yeah, I mean, I think this year has really made us all just appreciate time, right, and how it passes so quickly. And um, I think especially since we moved back to the U.S., um, we had a kid, and that has made it also just feel so much more precious to be close to each other and to get to share that. Well, I think if you have a young – do you have a young child, like a, mm-hmm. a baby? Yeah, a toddler now. Okay. Well, see, that's actually kind of – it's kind of perfect to have a baby during the pandemic because especially that first year you're you're basically right. in quarantine anyway <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> a pandemic puppy oh so i want to i guess trace the um the arc of your life and and get you to china um because you had a pretty epic experience like i think most of the time when i talk to people who have worked overseas or expatriated it's like you know two three years at most you were there for more than a decade, correct? I was, let's see, I first moved there in 2006. I left in 2018, but I was back and forth a lot. I think it was probably more like six, seven years, if you add it all up, the bits and pieces. Um, but yeah, no, it's 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 most of my adult life and longer than anywhere I've lived apart from uh, my hometown. Which is Oakland. Oakland, California, yeah. You were born and raised there? Yes, I was born in Berkeley, but raised in Oakland. Okay. And uh, always wanted to be a writer or came to it later? I think so. Yeah, I was looking through. So when we were in the process of moving my parents out to the Philadelphia area, I went through a bunch of my old kids things and, you know, school stuff. And yeah, when I think it was like a second grade notebook, you know, they want to they ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? And mine was an author. So apparently, though, I mean, there were there were other sorts of notions in between, but it was definitely a thought that was early on, too. And there's a there's like a genealogical element to your time in China and like some self discovery uh, of like family roots and uh, isn't it wasn't it your grandfather who yeah, was oh was also God. like a journal a journalist and a writer uh huh no it was my great grandfather um and it was just it was the most extraordinary thing because I had lived in Beijing for at that point four 
four or five years. And I was just about to move back to the US. And as part of it, I was helping um, my parents make the move from California and was cleaning out the garage. And it was just, uh, my parents are terrible pack rats. And it was this this last trunk that had been buried in one corner and it was locked. We had to break the lock open. Um, and there were these letters that had this address. Um, and I looked at it and it was, it was 50, 57 Shijia Hutong. And the Hutongs are these old Beijing streets, like narrow alleys. Most of them have been destroyed at this point. And I was like, there's not a chance this still exists because so much of Beijing has been obliterated. Um, but when I got back to Beijing, I, as one of, you know, the sort of the final things I did in my time there, I tried to trace more information about them. And as it happened, that address like led me to all sorts of information. Um, it turned out my great grandfather had been a reporter for um, or a journalist at an English language newspaper in Beijing about 100 years, almost exactly before I had moved to Beijing to do the same thing. Um, and also a poet. And um, yeah, I, I hadn't known um, any of that. And he, the the address also turned out to be a really short bike ride from where my husband and I lived in Beijing, uh, a place that I'd actually biked by many times. And there was just this wonderful symmetry and, and serendipity in finding those letters just before we'd left the country. If I, if we'd found them, you know, any time after we'd moved on, I'm sure I would have just looked and been like, ah, well, you know, maybe someday I'll go back and try and figure out more about um yeah, it just feels like this incredible stroke of luck and also led me to find family that was still living in China, which... Yeah, it's just it was all kind of amazing. So how magical does your thinking get when stuff like this happens? Like are you willing to be like, you know, great grandpa is somewhere in the ether like you know, puppeteering this or is this complete I don't I don't know about that. Though I am a little bit superstitious slash have a really strong I think um guilt complex when it comes to family and so in the course of all these um and explorations and digging into the past and trying to find documents and stuff. One of the things that I tried to do was find um, the location of his grave. And um, I did find it. And as it happened, it had been one of the ones that was desecrated during the Cultural Revolution. And so I don't know if he was the one, do, you know, doing the puppeteering from up above or from wherever, but I ended up, before, like, probably the very last thing I did in Beijing was um, we wiped out our bank account to buy him a new headstone because his had been defaced and um, destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. So if that's what his goal was, um, he used me very effectively to um, mount a very nice headstone for him in Beijing, which I hope someday, yeah, to be able to go and see. I, I, I haven't seen it yet, but that was, that was um, also a nice way to sort of end the experience um, in the city and the country. Yeah. Like I, I read something about that when I was prepping and I saw the photo of his grave and yeah. there's something unbelievably moving about it. Even, even for me, like, like watching or looking on and, and, uh, thinking about how little connectivity most of us have with our distant ancestors. You know, you, most people don't know their great grandparents. Some people do. Um, I certainly never met mine. Yeah, I wouldn't even know where they're where they're buried, and I've no, never, exactly. I've, I, yeah, it's yeah, and and for, I mean, I, I never really met any of my grandparents. Um, I think you know, my grandmother maybe one of them lived for a few months um, before she died after I was born, but they were just a big blank. And also, not coming from a family of writers or people, you know, just I had always just that that part of me had, had felt like it just kind of existed in a vacuum and to know that there was someone else um yeah who, who had shared so much um geographically and in, in terms of writing and interest was yeah it did feel feel a bit magical 
That's awesome. And good for you for getting him a new headstone. Like the headstones were desecrated uh, during Mao's revolution. Is that what mm-hmm. happened? Yeah. Anyone, you know, if you had ties to the overseas, if you were in any way bourgeois, if you were Western or had Western sympathies, um, all, all those sorts of things would make you fair game. Um, and, you know, someone like him who had spent time abroad, who um, was married to a woman from Hawaii, who spoke and, and worked for an English language newspaper would, would be very much suspect. And then so how did your family wind up in the Bay Area? Like they was it your parents yeah. who came over or grandparents or? So my parents met in the 60s and they decided to settle in the Bay Area. Um, they thought it would just be the best kind of place to raise their their family they wanted to be in a place that was really diverse ethnically diverse where they wanted to where they could feel comfortable um but yeah my, my dad was born in hong kong and then my mom was born in new york city oh, okay okay yeah. yeah i feel like the bay area especially back in the day that what better place to grow up it seems like such yeah. a like such an idyllic spot it's so beautiful yeah no i mean of course the way it is now it's it feels pretty unrecognizable but um especially then you know before so much of i feel i feel like now you can get really properly good chinese food really anywhere there's a a big university that attracts chinese students um and and really like i've been so happy to move back to philly and find amazing citron food um but yeah i mean especially at the time that they were trying to think about where they want to raise their family i mean if you wanted to to have like a really good chinese market and really good chinese restaurants um yeah the barrier was the place that made sense and your folks, uh, you said, were not writerly. They were in other lines yeah. of work. Yeah, in other lines of work. Um, yeah, I mean, but that said, like, you know, definitely loved books. Or certainly my father, um, I think, really admired books. Like, just really liked the idea of books. We were surrounded by a lot of them growing up. We used to go to the library sales a lot. I don't know if you... I'm sure in LA, the LA library must have great ones. Um, but in San Francisco, there's an amazing one that happens every year. Um, and we used to, you know, spend a lot of time sitting in Barnes and Noble and reading and, um, yeah, just spent a lot of times in libraries growing up too. And where did you, where did you go to college? I did. Um, I went to college in Rhode Island, um, did not study anything, um, sort of fiction related, um, or journalism related for that matter. Did you go to but Brown? I, Where did you go? I did go to Brown. Okay. Yeah, I went to Brown. Um, they don't have a journalism program there, but I, I did work for a while for a local alt weekly. Okay. So you, what did you major in in Brown? I majored in sociology and international relations. Okay. But that factors in, I mean, I feel like that's, those are pieces of the puzzle considering where your career <laughs> took you and where your fiction has taken you. Yeah. Uh, what, cause I, I feel like there are a lot of writers or not a lot, but sometimes there are writers who studied anthropology hmm. in college, which feels, you know, like a a course of study that could be instructive, you know? Yeah. And I'm wondering if you look back on your time at Brown and sociology in particular, I guess international relations too, but do you see like a direct line between courses you took or instructors you had Mm. and things that wound up in your fiction in particular or helped you put it together or gain insight into character or place? I don't think anything strictly so much in the course of my studies, though. I I loved studying sociology, like the idea that there's a whole discipline just based on the idea of let's figure out how human societies work and how do social movements form and um, thinking about race and class and, um, 
Yeah, I love I love that. Um, how do it, how do human societies work? Do you know? <laughs> well, you know, I wasn't the best student. <laughs> I like the fact that you could take classes in topics. Um, I don't know that I exited with any clear sense of how these things do happen. Um, but I will say, like, I think Brown exposed me to a lot. Um, one of the writing courses that I took um, was on, it was, I can't remember the title, but it was, it was essentially about essay, like the essay form. And it exposed me first time to like Harper's and the Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker were just not public, you know, they weren't publications that I ever was around growing up. Um, and that was really eye opening um, just to be exposed to all of that. So, I mean, I definitely, I think it, it didn't, you know, yeah, if anything, it just sort of cemented in my head that, oh, okay, there's a universe, right, of people who, who write. And not, I don't think I thought at that point that I could be a part of that universe, but it definitely um, was, was eye-opening. Okay, so how did you wind up in journalism, working for the Wall Street Journal? Because you, you know, you get your degree and you go out into the work world, I guess, you know, with a degree from Brown, even if it's in sociology, you maybe get your foot in the door somehow that way. But uh, like... Not really. I was. I would have. I mean, I, I. do feel like I was terribly underqualified when I applied for job at the journal. I was really lucky to get in the door. And really, I think the way that it transpired was. So I, after I graduated, I went. Um, I worked in D.C. for a nonprofit um, journalism group called the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, which um, they did the Panama Papers. They've, they've done a lot of really amazing work. And when I was there, I worked with them on a few different investigations were like they're kind of like these like year-long sprawling deep dive things they would partner with journalists all over the world and you know continue to do so um and they didn't have anyone really that they were working with um in china and so i ended up kind of being their china reporter and um one the the main project i worked on when i was there was looking into tobacco smuggling of all things and counterfeit cigarettes um which china is a huge source so that was my first introduction, I would say, to proper reporting. Um, and I, so I spent some time in China for that project. And Do you speak also, Mandarin? or uh, like, I do. Okay. Yeah, I, I went to a bilingual school um, in San Francisco growing up. and But most of it, I mean, a lot of it I learned. Yeah, I would say most of it I learned in college and then when I moved to the country and um, after graduating. Um, but um, yeah, anyway, long winded thing. So I did start doing some China reporting like early on at ICIJ. And then um, after I moved to China, I think it was principally sort of to, to further answer your question, I think it was language skills that helped me a lot to get the job at the journal because I really didn't have any newspaper experience before that. But how did you so you you had contacts at the journal um, just by way of the, the nonprofit work that you were doing in Washington and then they knew that you were over there? Is that what happened? So I had I had spent time. Um, I had some China clips. I'd spent some time working freelance when I was in China, also doing some writing. Um, and I knew someone, um, through a family friend on the business side of the Wall Street Journal, like nothing to do with editorial. Um, but I was in Hong Kong and, um, met with him and he was kind enough to introduce me to someone who was on the editorial side who met with me. We just, you know, had coffee and he was really, really lovely and nice and encouraging. And it happened that they had a couple openings and, um, yeah, he encouraged me to apply. So, so my first posting with the journal was in Hong Kong. And what were you covering, like, like out of the gates? Yeah, I 
was covering Hong Kong, the city, which was an amazing job. Hong Kong is such an extraordinary place. And it was um, just a really special beat beyond just to be able to write about the politics of the place, um, society, to not have to have. So I was I wasn't doing anything you know related to um finance or anything quantitative which which was merciful and it just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was just a really special kind of job i i loved it so much I, this, this was hong kong in 2012 which was so at the time a lot of the stories were around um kind of the encroachment of beijing the increasing mainlandization um so i was writing about sort of the pro-democracy movement and things like that but it was obviously long in advance of the latest developments in hong kong um yeah, where are yeah. things? I should probably have a better sense of where things are. I spoke with an author on the program who had spent time there as well, and this was back when the student protests were like in full yeah. flower, and it was sure. like it's emotional. You know, it's been really, really difficult over there um, for a long time. Yeah. Oh gosh. No, it's and and this year in particular. I mean, this this year has just been a million headlines compressed into one year, but, and a million sad stories too, but I feel like what's been happening in Hong Kong has been among really the worst and saddest of all, all of the stories this year. It's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the national security, there was a new law passed this year that um, criminalizes a lot of really basic um, activity in Hong Kong. Um, it's made it, it's had an incredibly chilling effect. Um, Hong Kong is a place where, you know, it was the, only place in greater China that you could commemorate Tiananmen. When I was there as a reporter, you would have just hundreds of thousands of people flood the streets every year in protest to, uh, or in sort of in memory also of, of Tiananmen. Um, they, it's like in a really vibrant, rich place, right? Where you could really speak your mind. Um, and, and, and it's, it's increasingly not that way. And it's, it's really awful to see. Yeah. Well, I mean, there even like there's even um, concerns in Taiwan, you know, that there's going to be encroachment there, too. Like it's just feels like that region is um, in a lot of turmoil. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of really sad, sad things happening right now. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow. Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I want to ask you about being on the ground as a bilingual expatriate journalist who doesn't have a ton of journalism training. Yeah. And you're trying to report, like you said, your beat was Hong Kong. So you're trying to report on Hong Kong. And I'm, I'm assuming you didn't spend a ton of time in uh, 
China or Hong Kong as a child, did you? Or... That's right. No, just, just Hong Kong. But the first time I was in the mainland was 2006 when I was already in college. Okay. Just because it would seem like a pretty heavy lift to... Yeah. to be reporting with authority on a place that you don't have a ton of familiarity oh, yeah. with. Like, yeah. uh, you know, did you get, I, I, you know, I imagine going to a bilingual school, um, you know, and, ha you know, obviously having uh, that heritage that you would have a greater sense of Chinese culture than the average American, but still you're an American girl from Oakland. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so what was the, what was that part of the challenge? Like trying to like wrap your yeah. head around an entire, yeah. an entire place and, and then report, yeah. report on it with some yeah. competence. Hong Kong was an easier place to be a reporter. Beijing. So I moved to Beijing in 2014. Um, and that was a much, much steeper learning curve. I really feel like I spent the first year trying to wrap my arms around so many things, but just how you report in a country like China. And I was really fortunate in that the Wall Street Journal has an amazing group of people that or, or did. So many of them have been kicked out this year. Um, but at the time that I was there, there was just such, I mean, just decades and decades worth of incredible expertise from um, my fellow correspondents and our bureau chief, not to mention our Chinese colleagues who were really the unsung heroes of the bureau, um, all of whom helped educate and just like show me so much about how to be a reporter there. And it's, you know, that's everything from kind of the link, the, the way to, to interview people, um, how to get people to talk to you, to just all of the backgrounding and politics and history and context that is so important in doing the reporting. Um, and I mean, to the, to the day I left, I constantly felt like I just needed to be better and, and be learning more and doing more because it is a really hard place to be a reporter and, and, and getting constantly harder um, throughout the time that I was there. And, and obviously now, of course, it's, it's an entirely different situation altogether when my, when my colleagues, um, are not even so many of them no longer even in the country um, having been kicked out yeah i mean i just to get ready to talk to you i was like reading like g's wikipedia page and mm. reading about the culture i was like i am so stupid i need to know more um, i mean yeah i just felt stupid like <laughs> all the time being there. <laughs> well at least you were fluent or at least you know i'm assuming you're sure. cl close to fluent in the language yeah. like that at least you could hold your own in that way i think when you have like really mediocre language skills and you can only be two dimensional in conversation, yeah, then you really feel like a dumbass. Like I've been in that situation too many times as like the monolingual American bro who's, I can basically say like, that is good. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> no, but even, I mean, even if I can literally, you know, fluency to the point of being able to communicate fine, but to do so with like the requisite delicacy and knowing how to solicit the information you want in the right you know, correctly couched manner. I mean, yeah, being able to ask a question, being able to ask it the right way from a Chinese bureaucrat, it's just like, it's like 10 other layers up. Um, yeah. And before I went into a lot of interviews, I would first just, you know, search online trying to figure out, okay, what are, what, like, what, what are sort of the terms of art here? Like asking colleagues, what are there, you know, what are the things I need to be mindful of? The phrasing, is there a way that I can try and say this in a way that's going to be sound more, um, just like something you want to answer. Um, like I'm thinking of, you know, writing about um, education, which was something I, I wrote a lot of stories about education. When I was there and a lot of stories about what we in the West would call brainwashing and um, what, you know, eventually you learn how to, to ask questions. So it's, you know, you talk about patriotic education and just figuring out the, the, the right 
terms and ways to approach people in a way that's going to um, elicit the information you want. But yeah, it's it's all of it was an incredibly steep learning curve, and I and I don't feel like one that I really um, ended up feeling like I was on top of the game because you're you're just constantly always having to learn. And you have these like Chinese. Um you know, citizens working at the bureau who are essentially functioning at least in part as your tutor. Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Con- at least you have, I mean, how nice to have those people there. Absolutely. Uh, and like, what a great way to learn. What, what a great way to learn a country, you know, really yeah. to, to do that work. Yes. Yeah. No, I, I, there was one, um, Chinese researcher in particular. Um, so they're, they're called researchers because the Chinese government does not allow Chinese nationals to work as reporters for um, foreign media. So they can't get they can't get bylines. Um, it's this incredibly inequitable system um, set up by Chinese law. Um, but one of one of the researchers there was just. I mean, we would all just sort of sort of gather around her feet as she did phone calls because you could just, I mean, you just needed to take notes at what she was doing. Just such, such an art form. Um, people that we learned so, so much from. And yeah, it's, yeah, anyway, amazing, amazing people who, who are really the backbone of so many bureaus out there. So, okay. So when you're, you, you said that you kind of learned from these people, among other things, how to interview people. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I'm assuming this could be like your your average civilian to like a government operative to somebody in the business community. Sure. Mm-hmm. Are there are there you know cultural um, mores or uh, like you know things you had to pick up on the fly that you have to do in China when you're interviewing someone that say I would not have to do interviewing someone in the states. Hmm. I don't know. It's so interesting coming back to the states because. <laughs> There are times when I come back, when I've come back and I sort of, I mean, China, of course, is an enormously hard place to be a reporter and so many people won't speak to you. But when you do find the people who will speak to you, often they'll be incredibly frank and wonderfully so. And what strikes me coming back to the U.S. is how incredibly flacked up every single company is, how everything is run through PR people. There's so many filters. And I I do miss that sense of immediacy that you could have in conversations I think more readily in China where there wasn't the same really sophisticated highly paid media PR apparatus that exists to um, insulate sources yeah I mean I feel like and maybe it's the same way everywhere but it seems like something that would be more American where people are so immersed in media and social media culture yeah. and have been so advertised to their whole lives that people have a pretty sophisticated, like even the average Joe has a pretty sophisticated sense of PR almost. <laughs> like, I think it has been exacerbated in the years since I left, when I first left the US, right? I graduated in what, 2008, and then I came back in 2018, about a decade later. And I was really struck. I mean, one thing, so I was out in Minnesota reporting on um, a case of alleged rape um, of a, um, perpetrated by a Chinese billionaire against a local student. And I was, so I spent a lot of time at the university and I was really struck that you couldn't just walk into certain um, offices, right? Like I remember when I was at university, you could, you could walk into a dean's office, you could ask to see somebody. Um, whereas now it's, everything's like key carded and you are, um, it just, it, as soon as you, you know, you ask to to see to go to a certain person's office. Where is it? Well, who are you? Are you with the press? And then getting, yeah, and then getting the door closed. On it just it felt much more regimented than than I remembered it certainly feeling when I left when I when I left the U.S. So when you were working in China for the journal, 
were you guys had to have been surveilled did yes. you was there talk of this did you have yeah. uh, are there ways that uh foreign media or american media entities or bureaus within chinese borders uh, are there measures taken to protect communications or is it just basically assumed that everything you say and write and email is being monitored anything that we would say over email or certainly over certain social media maps we knew of course would, would have potentially monitored and did that did, did you have to ever do cloak and like cloak <laughs> and dagger stuff to to do your job i mean i think i think you for me anyway i always assumed and I think many of my colleagues did that whatever we're working on, the Chinese government would know about and that um, broadly speaking, with the exception of certain stories, you know, we, we just operated with with those constraints. And um, in some cases, yeah, it was, you know, there there was one story that I was working on when um, one of the women I wanted to speak to just wouldn't speak on the phone whenever I call, just would not speak. And it wasn't. um entirely clear if it was because she didn't want to speak to a reporter or because she knew um, she was a person of interest to the Chinese authorities. And so she was being monitored, of course. And so um, that was a, a situation when I just ended up having to go in person. And it was, um, you know, hours, it was like a day long journey to go um, and to sit outside this woman's apartment and wait in hopes, I think waited until like nine o'clock at night um, until she came home. And then it became actually clear she she really did want to speak. But you just you, you absolutely couldn't talk to her on the phone. Uh, you had to go in person, and mm -hmm. you had to just take the gamble and see if she would try and do it. You know, maybe at night, maybe when people weren't looking. Did you ever find yourself in any position of legal jeopardy? And are there like are reporters that are with like you know a foreign uh, bureau? Are they protected in any way? You know, I guess you're just subject to Chinese law. Like like does the Wall Street Journal have a team of attorneys like ready to help you out if something were to happen, or are you kind of uh, on your own, like if you were to, I don't know, if you were to. I think the Wall Street Journal has, has, yeah, I mean, of, of course, has provided really robust support to all my colleagues who've been kicked out of the country. Um, and I think, I think as we did our work, we were conscious that, of course, the people who were most at risk were not us as foreigners there, but the people who were speaking to, right, um, or Chinese colleagues. Got it. Got it. Okay. Uh, so fiction, um, and I'm gonna. I'm just going to tell you what I think and you can shoot me down if I'm wrong. <laughs> um, but I, I'm like sitting here trying to imagine your life as a reporter on the ground in this massive country. Um, your job is to report on it and to understand it and to kind of translate it to folks back home. And it's an impossible task. I mean, it's, 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 it's enormous. Uh, and, I don't know, you know, you, you just kind of have to do the best you can. But I imagine, too, just as somebody who is an expatriate, um, the, the sensory experience of being in a, in a foreign land is so overwhelming and constant and amazing. Um, I love that sense of, like, not knowing where I am. I, I, some people don't, but I really like being disoriented. <laughs> uh, and... I can imagine as a reporter, you were taking in information for stories and processing it as journalism, but there was so much that you were catching that was rolling, you know, rattling around in your brain that didn't necessarily have a place in straight journalism that wound up working its way into your fiction. 
Like, is that, am I on the right track? Yeah, like, that's, like, exactly, that's exactly what it was. No, you've put, you've put it so well. It was just, and, and I love that you say a sensory experience, right? Because so much of it felt that way. Just like being in a place that was so rich with impressions and, and tactile details and the people that I was meeting and interviewing and the things that you would see just biking down the street, um, just a thousand details and impressions coming at you at any given time and constantly changing. Um, and it just felt like such a multiplicity of things that is really hard to capture in journalism. And so often, yeah, I, I just, I it felt like, you know, I would come away from a reporting trip, right. That was about one story and you'd come, you'd come back with just notebooks full of other things that, you know, maybe they weren't newsworthy, but they felt so meaningful and charged and important and poignant and surprising in other ways. And and so fiction, these stories absolutely became a way to, to channel, to channel some of those um, pieces. Yeah. 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 And so was this, was writing short fiction or writing fiction, something that like a, a dream that you had sort of been harboring prior to your time in China? Or was it something that sort of occurred to you as you accumulated this material and you know what I'm saying? Like, what, like, how about how far back does the interest in writing fiction go for somebody who has made her living as a journalist? I always loved to write fiction, and I always loved to write poetry from the time that I was a kid. And so, when we spoke earlier about, I was saying in second grade, I, I found that notebook or whatever that page that said I want to be an author. That would that would very much would have been what I had in mind was writing poetry and writing probably really bad ripped off versions of the wizard of oz which was <laughs> my favorite series growing up um but i didn't think that it was something that you could do for a living and so journalism because i always loved to write was became a really just seemed like the place to go and also because i, I truly love being a journalist and just getting to talk to a million people and exercise my curiosity in that way um but sh but i'd always written fiction and, and poetry on the side and um something that i had come back to and dropped and come back to again, depending on what was going on. When I started at the journal, um, I had just finished a novel that I'd written um, and I laid it aside um, for a couple years. And then when I moved to Beijing, I picked it up again and um, tried to revise it and I found myself getting stuck. And um, I have always loved short stories, but I'd never written any. And so um, one day when I was biking back home from the bureau in Beijing, um, this phrase Shanghai murmur popped into my head and um, I, I thought that I would just write, try and write a short story around it. And, and then I set myself the task of writing 10 um, and those were eventually what, what grew into this collection. But for me, it was, um, yeah, it was definitely part of something that I had, um, had been a, a huge part of my life for a long time writing fiction, but short stories specifically were new to me. But I feel like for somebody who had been cranking out deadline-driven pieces for the <laughs> journal, it seems like a natural, like, lateral move to start writing short fiction, <laughs> right? And it, like, yeah. you give yourself deadlines. And I, like, I've always said on this show that journalism as a training ground for a fiction writer is, is so great at the level of just discipline and not being, yeah. pre not being precious about getting words on the page. You know, it just yeah. it teaches you how to, how to produce I definitely think that I and I, I also think so I think it one of the really hard things about writing fiction is it's like well can I do it and I think journalism shows you that you can you can write you can get to the end of a page right it's your job to get to the end of the page whether or not it's good or not but you can do it you can get there and and if you rise if you revise it can get better and that's it's another lesson that I've definitely learned from journalism um 
but yeah, I, I do think that the short story form really corresponded well to my life in Beijing, where you would work so intensively on a story, you know, be traveling and reporting, and then you come back and you'd have periods that were a little bit more fallow, where you'd have more mental space and, and short stories um, worked really well in that context. And I think too, also when trying to capture the world around me and um, just so, so much that so many stories, right? It just felt like trying to pick one narrative, uh, one set of characters would have been really hard. I mean, in some ways, I guess you could say I just couldn't pick one um, and ended up writing 10 instead. But yeah, I, I definitely think that the form was, um, yeah, really corresponded with my life as a reporter too. What about like the, like, I feel like with story collections, there's always inevitably going to be connective tissue, like thematically. Uh, mm. Often it's not, necessarily fully apparent even to the writer until like yeah. the, the end of the process you go oh right. like this is or, or was it was it something you started with or was 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 there something thematically that you realized about the collection as it like finished up um or i, I guess some writers i think it's the minority start with some sort of thematic idea and write yeah. around that going into no it. i mean for me it was just really trying to capture some of what I saw around me and some of, I mean, I think a lot of the themes that do emerge in the, in the book were just the natural byproducts, some of the questions and ambiguities that I was wrestling with in my own life in China. Like I think of the story Lulu, the first in the collection, which follows um, two twins, one who becomes a political sort of online activist and ends up jailed and her twin brother who winds up being a professional video gamer and, and very successful. And, um, just that that story is wrestling a lot with this question of you know how do you make meaning in, in life where in a life where um, so many where you're surrounded by so many injustices where where the world and the state can be so cruel. Um, Are you talking about America? I'm talking about that here, but yes, that is something that many people have observed to me since reading the collection. Um, a lot of resonances. Well, I, I got to say, I'm going to interject because I was yeah. like, like I'm panicking as I prepare for this interview, like realizing how uh, little I know about Chinese history. And I was just trying to brush up to make sure that I could be like fluent. And there was a part of me where I was like reading about the Cultural Revolution uh, and all that happened and... I was sort of otherizing it. I was like, wow, that's crazy that that happened there. And then I was like, you know what? Like, who the hell am I to to think such things? Like, we're, look at what we're going through right now. You know, like, I don't think there's that much distance. Um, yeah, you know. I mean, I think that's a question. I'm, You know, when I was growing up and learning history, I just always remember thinking, like, what would it have been like to be these people, right? And to be front row seat, whether, whether we're talking China during the Cultural Revolution or during Nazi Germany. And I think part of the impulse to write the collection was trying to get inside the head a little bit of, of or just share, trying to evoke, you know, I think for a lot of people, China feels as you're saying, like the other and um, yeah, just to, just to give a more intimate sense of what it's like to be wrestling with some of these questions and in, in a personal way um, on the ground. Well, I mean, America has this mythology about itself, which I guess has infected me, you know, on some level, but um I don't know. I, I guess there's the there's the events of the past four years and the deterioration of democratic institutions and uh, just all the insanities that we've had to live through. Um, it sort of has exposed a lot of the weaknesses in our system in a way that's unsettling, to say the least. But then, I, I always think, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, and I was just going to say, and then I, I think it's also interesting as I was reading 
uh, about Chinese history is the fact that like, you know, the, the rise of authoritarian of the authoritarian impulse and the anti-democratic impulse in America is coming from the right. Um, and in China, unless I'm totally misreading it, it's more of a left wing authoritarian, like the Mao communist uprising. Is that a mischaracterization of it? Or, I mean, it just seems like two sides of the same coin is where I'm headed. I, I, I think if we kind of strip away at all, like I, I think, so, and this is something that um, some of the stories evoke a little bit in the book too, is just, I think fundamentally humans find the anti-democratic urge really seductive and the, the desire to not be in control of your life in some ways can be really propulsive and compelling. And that's something that I was trying to get at in the last story of the book, Gubeko Spirits, you know, which is the one about um, a group of commuters who are stuck in a Beijing subway platform for months um, at the mercy of the government, but end up actually loving it and <laughs> forming their own cozy community, right? Like that's what, that's what that story in so many ways is about, that the seductiveness of being dictated to. It takes off a lot of the pressure, I guess, of having to like have your own agency and make decisions or something. And, and, you know, like in the book, you end up getting awesome fried noodles and really bad TV. Which <laughs> okay. So this is, I mean, that, that's a good example of a story that I think diverges from like Lulu, you know, like there, there's a, I think there's an interesting blend of, you know, what's the, I'm, like more realist fiction with magical realism, um, at work in your collection, which I think distinguishes it. Um, a lot of times if somebody's working in a, in a realist mode, that's the entire collection. Mm. Or if somebody's writing magical realism, that'll be a consistent thing throughout, but you've found a way to sort of like mix it up a little bit. And as I was reading, I was thinking like I was reading new fruit and I was like, God, this is like, so like, I don't think, I've worked that muscle in myself as a writer. If I have the courage to just like leap out and be like, yeah, it's a new fruit. And <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like you have to have a certain courage and a willingness to kind of believe, believe your own story. I don't know. Do you see what I'm getting at? It just, it, I, see, it, I, I don't think it was good. I just think it was fun. I spent so much time in Beijing wedded to the, you know, to the really punctilious attention to detail and what is true and fact checking a million times. And so for me, the, stories really just writing stories was a chance to play in so many ways and to have that sense of of just being able to experiment with like a really lush canvas and just see where things would go and you know you bring up the story new fruit yeah for me i think that so that story was based on my neighborhood in a lot of ways this, this neighborhood one of the hutongs that i lived at in beijing and specifically was based on the nectarines that they would sell um, in the summers, which were amazing. And just, I would eat like bags and bagfuls of them. And, um, and I, I really loved that part of the city, the hutongs, which are the traditional sort of part of the city and alleys that were full of old retirees sitting around and gossiping and people watching and on weekends, like I really love nothing more than to wander around and, and sort of take in that atmosphere and, you know, and chat with folk. And, um, but at the same time, like you would just look around and, and know that, the people that you were seeing had been witness to so many incredible tragedies and things that just are beyond the imagination. And um, so, so I just found myself wondering, you know, what, what would happen if, right? Like what would happen if one of these, if this intoxicatingly delicious um, fruit, which I was addicted to and everyone in the neighborhood was addicted to during those seasons. Um, what if it started to make everyone remember what they wanted to forget? And 
for me, I, I found a lot of those, the impulses to write stories, whether it was New Fruit or Kubeko Spirit about the, the train communities who get stuck, was just this question of like, what if, right? And um, I think I, I, I had, I felt that impulse so strongly just because I, I spent so much time you know, in China being grounded in just in the kind of the grind of, of the daily news and the headlines and what um, what was happening and and, and feeling those and, and wanting to convey some of those realities, of course, in those story in these stories, but also to to conjure up a sense of, well, like, what if and, and possibility to. And then finding the deeper meaning of your own imaginative flights after the fact, like realizing yeah. what this new fruit might have sent, you know, might symbolize or what this community on the train platform, you like, you, you would come to that later in the process. Definitely. Yeah. And that's, that's part of what made writing the short story so fun was you start with sort of an image or like a stray idea and then, um, or like a voice of a character and you don't know what any of it means until you've written through and then you're like, Oh, that's who you are. Or, Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. It's, it's tapping into all these things that are, are unconscious until, until you write them and, and they, they become apparent to you and ho hopefully the reader too. Okay. But did you ever have any that didn't work? Like, were you like, oh yeah, there's a unicorn on the street <laughs> corner. And I, what if somebody was riding around a unicorn? Oh, I definitely, oh, in terms of like those sorts of conceits, not really. Well, I did write one story about a series of ghosts that were, um, that kept popping up in someone's home. Um, actually, in, in, I had a very specific image in my head of this old house um, in the Bay Area that was um, being inhabited by an elderly man and um, all these ghosts kept kind of walking in and out in a very matter of fact way. And I just, I really like delighted in that image um, and just his reactions to them, but it, it didn't go anywhere. It <laughs> didn't really have any propulsive, like, yeah, there was no um, connected tissue beyond just the ghosts. I just was really tickled by that notion and I ended up having to set it aside. So yeah, sometimes, sometimes the ideas were just, fun and delightful but but didn't actually have their own gravity but um it's it's still i think living on a hard drive somewhere so maybe i'll resuscitate at some point yeah who knows maybe it'll become like a novel or something <laughs> but i think like there's a lesson in that because like i think when i would have an idea of that nature i might pursue it for like a page or two and then i'll convince myself that i'm being silly or something like i have a hard time taking mm -hmm. my I, I have a hard time taking myself seriously and what you're saying is that you just found it fun I think it was just fun. And I think also it helped that none of them were too over the top. Like I think a lot of the tweet, the kind of tweaking on reality that happens in the books are, are, to are told in a fairly realist way. Like there aren't llamas spreading wings and starting to fly. Like it's, nothing is too, too over the top, but um, yeah, it's like, pl I, it's like plausible. It's like plausibly yeah, it's real. Like somebody's, somebody's right. hi hybridizing like a new fruit. Like I could, I yeah, could imagine exactly. just plays with your emotions or um, which I think also is really true to life. Of, you know, in China, in which so many things already feel so over the top and just genre bending on their own. Um, I always think of the one of the hutongs near us, um, it's a street that was incredibly popular um, with tourists and like local sightseers. And um, for a while, there was there was this fashion in which people would wear these um, fake green plants on top of their head, like these little sprouts. Anyways, very fun and very silly. Um, but sometimes when it was really crowded, it just like so many people would be wearing these like funny fake plants on their heads that you could almost trick yourself into thinking that it was like this moving green field um, walking <laughs> down the street. And 
just so many images right, like like that that you would encounter in China. I mean, it's it's a country where the government like literally controls the weather and decides when it's going to rain. Um, Wait, they control the weather in Beijing, at least. Yeah, they can seed the clouds, which uh, I have no idea how this technology works, but it's um, it's something that they would do to clear the skies in of pollution in advance of big political events. Um, when you wanted the skies to look camera ready, you would, because of course, I mean, most of the time the skies there are in Beijing in particular are incredibly um, gray and polluted and smoggy. But if you want to make the smog go away, you can make it rain. And then I guess the water picks up the particulates and they fall to the ground and suddenly the sky is beautiful. It's just, I know that just happened in Los Angeles this week. I always, I was commenting on it. I love it. Like my, I always tell people, I'm like the best time to be in Los Angeles is the first blue sky day after a big winter rain. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So it's the exact same effect. And it it's, there's something that feels unreal and magical and sci-fi about it, but it's, it's real life. That's, that's so much of life in China. And like, I could be wrong on this, but I want to say that Kurt Vonnegut's brother, Bernard, is the person who discovered how to seed clouds. Oh, no way. Like random bit of literary trivia, but his brother was oh, a scientist. And I think his big contribution to the sciences is that he figured out there's some chemical, you know, or whatever that you, you put up there and it causes it to rain. Oh, that's amazing. So well, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's there's... developed since then and China's got new ways of doing it. But. <laughs> um. So what about the pollution there? Because, you know, we've yeah. seen, we've seen a lot of that in California with the fires. Like I've lived, yeah. th- I've lived through it here in LA where you like, you're not supposed to go outside, but mm-hmm. I, you know, you see, uh, I'll see news clip, you know, news clips online of Beijing and it's like, you, or uh, like Delhi, India or something like that. And it's like, you can't even really see it's like the, yeah, it's like walking through a cloud. Like, did you struggle with like, do you have allergies? <laughs> like, was it something that was like a, a, a problem? Though. Yeah, I mean, I don't have some of those pre-existing, pre-existing conditions that would have made it more dangerous. Um, it was, for me, yeah, just like regular wear and tear lungs. But um, yeah, it was really, I mean, I remember before I moved to Beijing, when I was still in, in Hong Kong, I had friends who were correspondents there. And they're like, yeah, well, we wear a mask every day. I just couldn't, I couldn't imagine that. Of course, now we, we all wear masks right. every day. Um, but at the time, you know, and especially the, the N95 masks, um, which are, are so much more tight and uncomfortable to wear uh, but that was that that became the daily reality I, every day when i back to work i would wear the mask um and we all just got used to checking the air quality index which i'm sure you guys probably make a lot of use of in la too yeah um yeah and if it was about 150 that was kind of my mental standard if it was above 150 i would um definitely wear a mask if it was below that probably not um but yeah it's just it's extraordinary all the things that you can get used to which, yeah. again, I think we're all experiencing. Yeah, like well, yeah. I, 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 I wake up and look at the AQI uh, almost every day on my yeah. little weather app just to see what oh, it's wow. like. And yeah, it was like for the first time in months, it was it was good. Like it was the rating was good as opposed to mod- oh, wow. as opposed to moderate. So I get very excited about this because I still the, the holdover from the, the the wildfires, or is that pretty normal for you guys? Oh, it's just like the it's the just the fact that you know you, we don't have precipitation for six months. Okay, yeah. So yeah. you know it just like gathers up there, <laughs> and then you have the fires. So yeah, there's like residual mm-hmm. fire particulate matter or whatever, and it's just the the cycle of things out here. But it's it's made all the worse by like the increasing you know, tendency of the entire state to catch on fire every August and September. <laughs> so you're lucky to be in Philly. Now you got out of California just in time. Now you're someplace where it rains and you, know, <laughs> you have nice, nice water supply and lush green yeah, lawns. Yeah. Like, 
green in the summers. It's very surreal after California gold. Um, no, I, I love it. I miss California a lot, though. Um, I wish it was a place more of us could afford to live, especially the barrier. Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. it's gotten out of hand to say the least. But they are saying now that people are leaving. People are like, this is too, right. this is crazy. It's on fire and it's expensive. I'm out of here. So, yeah, maybe, maybe you'll be able to come back <laughs> and live live among the ashes with the rest of us. We can all wear we can all wear masks and uh, wave to each other. Oh man! So oh, I want to ask you about the like this collection is receiving yeah. the kind of uh, attention and energy that only a small handful of books do in literary, in the literary world in any given year. And I've gotten pretty, I have a pretty good antenna for this, having done this show for a long time. And, um, you know, the fact that it's been, uh, that you had a story featured in the New Yorker. I want to say you had one featured in the Atlantic. Um, is that correct? Am I yeah. correct mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, but you, you know, right. yeah. it's gotten great blurbs. There's just like a certain buzziness around it that is unique and I have a lot of listeners who are writers or who are aspiring writers, yeah. many of whom write short stories and would love to be published in The New Yorker and The Atlantic. Yeah. So how? How does I this happen? I, I don't. Well, I, I mean, I can tell you literally I, the, the broader answer to like the how. I have no idea. I like it all just feels just so surreal. I mean, the fact that all this is happening with the pandemic and like the book is quote unquote coming out, but like also I will never really have proof that it's come out because I can just sort of, I mean, I can look at a copy, but it just, it just feels all the more surreal, especially since like book tours and bookstores and all that, all those sorts of events aren't happening. But yeah, I mean, in terms of how it happened, it just, um, gosh. So I, so I wrote, I wrote the short stories. I finished them. And then, um, I queried agents, um, and, for that, like Publishers Marketplace was really helpful in trying to, I mean, I'm sure like all of your um, authors probably give some more of advice, but someone told me that and I did find that really helpful as a resource just to like read and figure out how this works. Like who, who are these people? Um, yeah. So I, I found that really useful. Um, and then, yeah, some, someone took the collection on and um, she was, she was getting ready to shop it to publishers Um and at that point, none of the stories have been published. And she was like, well, you know, like, I know that you work for the Wall Street Journal, but this is really a separate thing to be literary and like taken seriously as like a literary person. Like you need to have published things and literary outlets. And so um, I actually like sort of freaked out at that point. And then I was like, oh, God, like it just became really real at that point, thinking that like these are going to get published. Like I'm going to have to like tell my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal that like this is happening. And so like I, don't, I just felt like it was very weird coming out when because because in all the time that I'd been writing stories like I hadn't been talking about them with anybody really except for my husband until they were done and um so yeah they she went out and pitched um stories I guess to, to different outlets including the New Yorker and so that's that's where the first one appeared um but it was like the craziest weirdest thing to, to get an email from her saying that they had accepted it it was just like I, I it was just like a bolt of lightning I like I cried I was just in shock and everything that's happened since then has just felt like a a really weird dream. And did did she sell the collection based on the fact that the New Yorker published a story? Because I had that happen to a buddy of mine, you know? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So she sold the collection shortly thereafter. So that was obviously enormously helpful in generating like, I think, publisher interest, Um, which is also something I think I didn't really realize until my story got published in the New Yorker was how I mean, of course, I know the New Yorker is a big deal, but I did not know it was that big of a deal that 
I mean, I grew up on the West Coast. Like, I didn't know anybody who read it growing up. Um, but after it came out, like, I got emails from people who I just hadn't spoken to in years. And I was like, it just clearly, like, yeah. And, and in terms of um, getting attention from publishers, that clearly was, I think, the the thing that made all the difference. Otherwise, I don't know. It, like, maybe it wouldn't have been published. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, the new, I, I, like, I always have conversations about what moves the needle in literary publishing, whether it's like a rave review in the New York times. Um, like it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a big mystery, but I think when yeah. it comes, when it comes to short fiction, it's pretty indisputable that the New Yorker for literary short fiction is the pinnacle. Like if you get published, if your story gets published there, that can actually change the weather to continue yeah, that metaphor. Just, <laughs> changing i don't I, I yeah i mean i i still don't know how it happened but i'm so grateful that it did because it truly transformed like my book's chances of getting published um, okay because like you know it's funny like i'm you, you're saying all this and you're basically um causing me to reflect on the fact that i had it wrong like in my head i was like okay so she worked for the wall street journal uh, and then you told me you went to Brown. So in my head, I'm like, okay, so she knew people. Somehow they like they they, they got these stories in front of the right people because yeah. she works for the Wall Street yeah. Journal, and there's like this like community of journalists who oh, have each other. And no, it wasn't that. It was your agent. No, no, I don't know. Like that's something that has been really illuminating about entering this world. So to the degree that I have, is just like because it was only once I started trying to find an agent and stuff that I started reading like the acknowledgments in other people's books, which of course, like, I mean, who reads those, honestly, or I never did anyway, until I um, tried to look for an agent in my own. And I was like, oh, okay, this is where people think they're agents. Like now I can figure out who people's agent is and trying to trace it back that way. And then once you start reading the acknowledgments, you're like, wait, everybody knows everybody. Like, it's so shocking. Um, just when you see everyone's, yeah, it just, it became really cool. Like all the authors were thanking each other. It just, it is a really, it evidently seems like a really, um, tight community and it definitely felt um i, I don't want to say inaccessible um but it, it yeah it, it didn't feel like um familiar territory at all um well if you and, haven't if you haven't lived in new york yeah i think like done and, yeah right but no I, I i hear you like there's definitely i think sometimes from the outside looking in especially to people who aren't writerly they can assume that it's a much bigger world than it really is. Uh, and I, and I, sometimes I yeah. have to like tell my like aunts and uncles, I'm like, no, really, there's like 2000 people in the country who are into this. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. No. And they like all, all know each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of but once I started to try it, yeah. And understand it more. Um, but I, like, I felt anyway, just really like, just, I mean, I guess if, if I'm thinking about how, you know, why my agent, actually read my query letter i mean i think the fact that i worked for the wall street journal was helpful so i think that was probably um something that was helpful well um, no i i think it definitely not, is. no 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 i i will say on the like i don't get asked this all that often but sometimes people will ask me for advice about agents and querying and what i always say is like make your query letter like short like a screen length is good if it's too long they're just going to glaze over um, and then name drop. And yeah, I, I say that. that kind of in quotes, but like you, like, I feel like it's a filter. Like if somebody's written for the wall street journal, then they've at least jumped through some hoops and done yeah, some things professionally. I, like I cannot be qualified to write fiction, but at least I'm, you know, like it's, 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 um, at least they've heard of the wall street journal. So I think that was helpful. And then the work, and then, you know, this is the other part of it is that the work 
itself is excellent. And in the, uh, in the absence of that, nothing is happening. You, you could have the best agent in the world, but um, you know, there's just some, I think there's, I mean, I don't know if you've spent time trying to diagnose this. I mean, the book's not even out yet as we, as we talk, correct? It's February that it February, dropped. Yeah, every second. Um, but in a strange way, I felt like your stories speak to the cultural moment and the political moment that we're living through in America in sort mm. of, in sort of an odd way. Like it was a, I don't know, there was just some illumination that I found, you know, reading about mm. this distant land and the people there and, you know, finding common threads or finding insights that were applicable to things that I've felt and experienced in particular over the past few years. And maybe there's something in that that's causing people to respond. Um, yeah. Stateside. I've, Have you ever had that, that thought? I, definitely. I, I've had a number of people observe that to me. I think I really, I really do hope that this collection is, yeah, just that some of the questions do speak to, to people no matter where you live. And I think especially this particular moment in America that we're living through, um, I, I think there are those residences and, and I hope, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you felt them too. Okay. And I'll tell you this, this is another thing. Cause maybe I'm like a bellwether for people's moods uh, as literary readerly people, but um, my new year's resolution or one of them is that I'm only going to read as much as I can. Sometimes for work, I'm going to have to read American authors, but um, I only want to read work by four or international authors or work that, you know, I, I feel like your story collection would, uh, would qualify because you were a foreign correspondent, like sure. expatriated for a long time. But the part of it is that I just want to get smarter and be less like, you know, ethnocentric or whatever. But the other part of it is I'm so sick of America. <laughs> like, like I just like, I know people are insane. People are crazy everywhere, but I'm sick of American crazy. I need some different crazy in my life. No, I, I love that. China will definitely provide you with a different crazy. And I also think that, you know, I feel like one that I've had when thinking about this book and the time that's coming out, I mean, I think it's a, it's a time when so many of us feel tethered in place, right? Like you're saying sort of stuck and stir crazy. And, and I, re I really do hope the book offers kind of a respite right like a chance to, to travel in a way yes um, yes yeah i think yeah. that's that's part of it too like the timing of it is that you know all, like you know fiction always takes you out of yourself a little bit or takes you someplace but i think in particular um you know fiction set in china which you know to most americans uh i don't know it, it like i feel like i guess because of american history like europe or european fiction like culturally there's more connectivity, you know, but mm. I feel like China to the average American seems like extra difficult to process if you haven't been there or there's a, right. there's a steeper learning curve, you know, culturally mm -hmm. and otherwise, I think for most people. And that very fact makes it appealing because it seems like so different than, um, you know, our day to day here in so many ways. And I don't know. I, like I, I enjoyed it. I think for for that reason as well, it really gets you outside of your you know immediate sphere of experience. I'm so glad to hear that. And yeah, no, that that means the world. But thank you for thank you for reading and and for enjoying it. So, uh, your journalism colleagues, because you're still working as a journalist. I am. Mm -hmm. yeah. they, like I feel like there are so many journalists who have a novel in the drawer or who like secretly or privately. Right. Harbor aspiration, story yeah. fiction. So you bust out a story in the New Yorker. What are your colleagues at the Wall Street Journal saying to you? Um. Well, 
just like snapping number two pencils with envy, just like, oh, she did it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I, what I was going to say is like, I, I mean, I worked remotely and I did before the pandemic, so I don't actually see many of my colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I mean, I think some of them sent notes, which was nice. Um, I did hear from a few who said that they also write fiction, which was really nice because it's easy to feel, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I felt anyway that somehow the fiction that I would work on, like it felt like sort of like a fundamentally like unserious hobby that um, like was not something, I mean, I, I didn't talk about it with anyone, but I definitely wouldn't have talked about it with my colleagues. It's just, I don't know, it felt both very, very personal and also just something that um, didn't seem like in keeping with kind of the work that we were doing. But yeah, no, it's been really, people have been great and really supportive and, um, and it has been fun to know that there are colleagues who also are, are big readers or, or write fiction of their own. What about next projects? Like, are you already on to the next? Are you writing more stories or do you have a novel in the works? Um, I have a novel in the works. Um, and then just the day-to-day project of family life now. That's, yeah, that's, um, that's plenty. That's plenty. Yeah. What, yeah. Uh, can you give me any hints about the novel? Um, so it's, it's set in Hawaii and um, it features two sisters. Um, and it remains very much a work in progress. I feel like you need to do some field research. I think you need to pack up the family and go to Hawaii for the summer or something. No, that might have been a topic broach recently in this household. And my husband was saying the time difference would probably not work, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but I, w- I was very pro that plan. I will tell him that you are also pro that plan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think with the pandemic and everybody working from home and everybody sort of, you know, I think so many people have been thinking geographically, like, where should we, mm-hmm. I guess if you have like resources and you're fancy or something, you can just kind of go quarantine in Maui or something. But yeah, I think that's, I think the government was trying to get people to do just that, um, and offering plane tickets and stuff actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, sadly, I mean, it will be, it will be Philly for now. Um, but it's, we love it here. It's good. It's good to be back in the U.S. Even in this very strange moment. And do you, do you think that your time as a foreign correspondent is probably behind you, or do you think that there could be um, a future career opportunity where you you take your family and pack it up and go live abroad again? I would love that. Um, I think for the moment, at least remotely near term, we'll be U.S. bound. Part of, part of what took me back was just. Um, my my dad was ill and he needed help and so um i think certainly for a good while i think we'll be here um just to be close to them got it got it uh, well in the future i'd love would love that yeah i mean i think it sounds i think like what an education uh i was just talking uh, with another author recently about travel in this in that light like i've always seen travel as the best education mm. um like the most it's like the the fastest uh like high volume learning experience that I've ever had. Like it just comes at you so fast and you know, you can kind of spend the rest of your life processing it. Um, but yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And I think especially just the, the really fundamental lesson of being human and adult to realize that the world is so vast and you're such a small part of it. Um, which I, I remember was my first impression when I, when I traveled was like, wow, all of this has been happening and unfolding all the time. And I'm, I'm only just now getting to see it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then also, you know, having kids and I don't know, my daughter's now 10 already. So it's like, we have to get up, we have to get on it. But I had all these, you know, you have all these dreams when you're planning to have a family or your wife is pregnant and it's like, we're going to live abroad and she's going to be trilingual and, you know, (laughs) 
Still, still got. I got a lot to do. I think she's, I think she's old. Oh, you, she's young. And I always, I would say that to, to families too, like who you know mourn having to cut their Chinese experience short because they wanted the kids to be multilingual, or whatever. I mean, like you know, we talked about fluency earlier. I, I did go to bilingual school, but so much of the fluency for me just came from actually living in the country there as an adult. You know, the passion and, and drive that she'll feel is, is ultimately what'll get her there. But it's, uh, yeah, I hope that things become more normal and all that will be more possible soon. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed uh, talking with you. I'm glad to catch you at this moment. I love catching writers uh, when they're debuting, uh, especially like this. Uh, I feel like there are a lot of promising things on the horizon for you as a fiction writer. And we'll be excited to see, um, you know, how the book does this spring once it's out into the world. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for all, yeah, the questions and for, yeah, being interested in the book. It's really, really exciting and nice of you. Okay, there you go. That is the Ping Chen, her debut story collection, Land of Big Numbers, out there now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Actually, the official pub date is February 2, 2021. So pre-order it, get it next week, or if you're listening to this after the fact, just go buy it. Land of Big Numbers by the Ping Chen, available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find the Ping Chen online at thepingchen.com. Or you can follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at the Ping Chen. Uh, I'm playing the music. This is the theme song that I play at the close. It's a variation of the uh, opening theme song. So maybe this is a compromise. Do you feel good about that? Like nature sounds <laughs> or something at the beginning or maybe just the cold open and then I close with this? I don't know. Why do I feel so conflicted? Is Mercury in retrograde? What's happening? Anyway, go get Land of Big Numbers by Ping Chen. It's excellent. This program, The Other People Podcast, is offered freely. New episodes every Wednesday, sometimes an episode on Sunday. It's a free show, almost 700 episodes and counting. Your support makes a difference. If you like the program, if you find it beneficial to your existence tip your server just go to patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod drop a couple of bucks in the hat if you have thoughts on the show or on the music or on the lack thereof you can email me letters at other ppl.com the other people podcast has its own official app it's free it too is free go get the app it's a good app it's available where you get apps Michael Bible will be my guest next week on the program, I'm pretty sure. Michael Bible. He's got an excellent new novel out called The Ancient Hours that I just read. What else? We have a new president. Hey, hey, hey. It's weird for things to be sane or like semi-sane. Should I play some... uh, Here's a bird call. This is the magpie. That's the name of the bird.